Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. And today's hashtag Jill's pin is a sheriff star because we're going to be talking to the Attorney General of Texas. And I didn't have any other pin that I thought represented the Attorney... Uh, well, I'm sorry. We're not... We're talking about the Attorney General and perhaps a future Attorney General yes. of Texas. So I thought that this might help convey that message. Yes, and nothing really screams Texas more than a sheriff's badge. So um, Texas has become the ground zero for the assault on democracy and the rights that we treasure. Uh, the Republican-dominated Texas legislature has passed bills restricting polling locations on college campuses. And we see the Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott treating immigrants trying to cross the border like animals, setting up dangerous barricades and buoys. And just a couple weekends ago, we saw the Republican-controlled Texas Senate ignore clear proof of corruption wrongdoing when they voted to acquit their Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton on all impeachment charges passed in a bipartisan vote in the Republican-controlled Texas House, just as the U.S. Senate did with former President Trump. That was distressing. And so uh, when I had the opportunity to connect with Joe Jaworski, I asked him to join us. Um, he is a, a gem um, and he'll help us understand the slide in Texas toward fascism, the Ken Paxson impeachment and what happened there, why he was acquitted and his pending criminal case, which has been pending for like seven or eight years, one of the longest times in American history. Um, he may be running again. He ran against Paxton and lost in the last election, but he may be running again, depending on what happens to Ken Paxton's uh, attorney generalship in the next few months. Um, he was the mayor of Galveston and is now the owner of the Jaworski Law Firm, a maritime law firm. I know him because I worked for his grandfather and as a young boy, he visited the trial and I got to meet him then, but recently reconnected with him at the Texas Trib Fest in Austin, Texas. And while there, I heard him speak about the Paxton situation and was very impressed with the clarity of his explanation and was very pleased that he agreed to join us. Joe, it is so great to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Jill. It was great seeing you in Austin, and it's fine to be on your show. So we are so excited for this, and we want to start off by talking about um, the Ken Paxton situation. Um, as uh, our audience probably knows, in May, the GOP-controlled House of Representatives, with Democrats joining, voted to impeach Ken Paxton on articles of bribery and corruption. Um, and I I'm wondering if you can start off by just explaining what the impeachment allegations against Paxton entailed. Victor, there were 20 articles of impeachment, and I would say three quarters of them applied to the uh, unholy relationship that Ken Paxton developed uh, with now uh, ashamed and bankrupt and indicted uh, financier, a man named Nate Paul. Uh, over the last three years, Ken Paxton uh, has been under this uh, microscope uh, of investigation because his Eight handpicked conservative lieutenants turned him in to the FBI, Victor, after two years of essentially begging the boss, please give this relationship up. 
Ken Paxton would have none of it. Uh, apparently, Nate Paul was very important to him. And so the allegations involved uh, Ken Paxton turning the Office of Attorney General into a concierge law firm uh, for Nate Paul. Two or three examples. Nate Paul had a lawsuit against a uh, private foundation who was suing him for malfeasance, uh, basically investing their money poorly and refusing to turn over documents. Ken Paxton got involved in that lawsuit, not for the public, but to help Nate Paul. A second example, Nate Paul was about to have one of his many buildings foreclosed upon. He's now lost them all. But back in 2019, 2020, he asked Ken Paxton and received um, a midnight legal opinion that no one would ever be able to get in 72 hours that basically said, you can't foreclose on buildings in Austin thanks to COVID, which, as we all know, goes totally against the Republican playbook. You know, I mean, everything's open for business in COVID, but not on this instance. And then a final example, Victor, and back to you, is um, Nate Paul had been uh, raided by the FBI, the Texas Department of Public Safety, uh, the Texas Security Board, uh, thanks to an uh, affidavit signed by a federal magistrate, an actual federal magistrate in Austin in the Western District of Texas. Nate Paul wanted all of these people investigated for fraudulently investigating him. So Ken Paxton was happy to oblige. Nothing like this has ever happened in the Texas Attorney General's office. His own handpicked lieutenants turned him in, and they expected, of course, everybody to see what was happening. Did you know any of the people who were his aides that turned him in, and were they credible? The answer is no, I did not know them before, but now they are some of the most famous lawyers uh, standing up for <laughs> duty and honor. And, and Jill, I think the reason is we didn't travel in those circles. These were, you know, very Christian fundamentalist uh, attorneys, you know, Liberty Institute, you know, Federalist Society types who worked on the other side of the aisle. So there was never a whole lot of connectivity between Democrats and these uh, uh, almost all men, I think. Uh, but now everybody knows who they are and they, what they stand for is a value known as whistleblowing, which is if you see something, say something. Uh, and there are laws that protect people like that. And so far, uh, these men sacrificed their livelihood to do the right thing and turn in the rotten boss. And so far, they've gotten nothing to show for it. But the good news is this is not over. What do you mean by that? So Ken Paxton um, manipulated, with a lot of financial help, the political impeachment and Senate trial process. He was acquitted, some might say. That's not a word I'd use. Uh, he was pardoned, uh, is the choice of uh, verbiage, uh, because the Republican senators know uh, damn well what he did, and it stinks to high heaven, and they decided um, because of Ken Paxton's allies in Defend Texas Liberty, which basically owns the conservative wing of the Republican Party, that it was better just to let him go. Um, that trial in the Senate was anything but a trial. I'm referring to what's about to happen, which is real courts, real prosecutors, federal system and state system are going to have their say on Ken Paxton. Well, I, I, we definitely want to hear more about that. But all I can say is Sure sounds like the Donald Trump impeachment, which was not an acquittal, even though they had to utter the words not guilty as required in the federal government. There's no way they could have thought he was not guilty. It was 
a pardon. So that's a very good description. But uh, Victor, did you want to ask about the state trial, the um, criminal trial? Yes. Well, I was actually, I want to take a step back for a second and just ask you about back when the GOP led House did vote to impeach Ken Paxton, were you surprised at all that um, you had basically a tech a Republican controlled majority body vote to impeach someone from the same political party? Absolutely, Victor. It was a surprise. But then once it was revealed, it all made sense. You have to go back to when the whistleblowers went public with their concerns, which was October 2020. Uh, this had been roiling around in the uh, attorney general's office for at least two years from 2018. And after doing everything they could to persuade their boss to let it drop, they finally had to get the authorities involved. Three years later, uh, in uh, May 2023, is when the articles of impeachment were sworn out. And 121 members of the 150-member Texas House, almost evenly split between Republicans and Democrats, 60 and 61, uh, voted to impeach him. It was a surprise. Uh, not the least of which is because, you know, Texas is a Republican state and there are few opportunities for the parties to achieve something really important in a bipartisan way. I wrote uh, back in the Daily Beast back in May that this is not something that we should celebrate, uh, even though it is historically consequential. It is it is something that is um, a, a mournful moment because it's not about punishing Ken Paxton. It's about preserving the office. But what a shame that the office has come to this. What, was there any argument that his lawyers made that resonated at all with you? Any argument that you thought anyone could possibly acquit on? Only in the most political sense. The strategy that the lawyers uh, Tony Busby, Dan Cogdell, who have you know great success in their private practice, the strategy they pursued is really breathtaking. Which was, we're not really talking to you, senators. Like, look at page you know one thousand and twenty of the record, or look at Exhibit Twelve, or listening to this testimony again. No, instead they mimicked what was being said by Defend Texas Liberty on the billboards, on the robocalls, on the texts on TV uh, because they were spending literally millions of dollars, including paying uh, an army of tweeter trolls $50 a tweet to create a mass of disinformation regarding the Paxton uh, impeachment trial. So the, the lawyers in their closing argument, especially Jill, uh, began parroting talking points that had for two weeks been put out in, in the mainstream to the uh, constituents in the key Senate districts where senators were on the fence or were in play, like they could care less about the Democratic votes. They were like Charlie Weaver to block, you know, in the Hollywood squares. They wanted to block certain Republicans from voting yay. They wanted them to vote nay against each article. And so when you heard in the closing arguments, the Bush era is over or um you know, this was all Speaker of the House da drunk Dave Phelan doing this to get back at Paxton. It was all like sort of eighth grade mean girl politics. And unfortunately, apparently that is all that was necessary to cause a, a masterpiece of cowardice uh, in the Republican led Texas Senate. It's shameful. What does the Bush era is over mean? For all of us who aren't Texans. 
Yeah. Well, first off, you know, uh, the Republican Party should thank George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush, who, you know, last I checked, have two presidential libraries in our state. You know, uh, they should I, thank I, them for, you know, being, you know, uh, governor and congressman and party chairman. And, you know, uh, they are truly the family that, you know, you know, with with the addition of John Tower, you know, I guess, who who was elected in you know, 1960 to the U.S. Senate. I mean, the Bush family is is what made Texas Republican. Jill, the Bush era is dead or the Bush era is over means there is a Republican civil war in full bloom. And the far right uh, Christian nationalist uh, border security, uh, anti-LGBTQ trans burn books from libraries that have suggestive sexual material, all the things that have really little to do with making government work for like everybody. Instead, it's like, let's pick people and let's peck them to death. That wing of the Republican Party is ascendant. And, and when they say the Bush era is dead, it's like, you effete liberal going to Maine for vacation, Republicans get out of the way because we're here to deal a house of pain. So if I can ask you then, I mean, we, we talked about how it was surprising that the um, Texas State House voted to impeach um, Ken Paxton. And now with this, I'm wondering if you think there is a difference between Republicans in the Senate and um, Republicans in the House, both in terms of the character that they have, but also in terms of the policies that they introduce and ultimately pass. Well, so you start at the top, Victor. There is a great difference. Um as you know, there's 31 senators in the Texas Senate. There's 150 House members in the Texas House. Uh, each chamber is led by one individual uh, in the Senate, Dan Patrick. In the House, it is Dade Phelan. And, and think about how Dade Phelan is elected Speaker of the House by the membership. 150, you know, you have to get a majority. Right. Dan Patrick is elected by the uh, voter-terrified populace of Texas. Uh, he is elected statewide. And so, you know, he basically gets nominated in a very slim primary where a, around 2 million Republicans elect him. Uh, he never really has much competition. And then Texas just votes Republican. But Dave Phelan in the House is a lot more of a, a homogenous choice. You know, it's, it's true politics, but people, Democrats and Republicans elevate him to that seat. Uh, so they are the moderate body, the House. The Senate is much more the radical, uh, let's allow vouchers, uh, let's fund a border wall, uh, let's um, remove these books from the library, uh, let's uh, defund cities um, because they're so liberal, um, whereas the House uh, lets those things kind of quietly die in the days uh, at the end of each legislative session. So uh, going back to the Senate, um, it takes a two thirds vote to convict on an impeachment trial. And because of the makeup of the Senate, including the wife of Ken Paxson, who is a Senator, um, and they said she could not vote. They said she'd have to recuse herself, but they let her stay in the room which meant two thirds was two thirds of the full Senate rather than two thirds of 30. And I don't know if that made a difference in the verdict, if they could have had 20 votes 
but couldn't make 21. But it still sort of stinks to me to have that happen. Um, how did that come about and what did you think of it? Uh, it, it was consequential, Jill. L let me start at the end, which is there are credible reports reported in the Houston Chronicle, in the Texas Tribune, which is you know everyone's favorite nonprofit reporting. Uh, we, of course, were all together at Trib Fest this last weekend in Austin. These are not uh, you know echo chambers. These are legitimate reporting uh, organizations. And they clearly spoke to senators who were in the deliberations who said there were 20 votes to convict. And that when they couldn't get that extra one, that people just said, well, look, if he's not going to be convicted, I'm not sticking my neck out. So then 20 became 14. Wow. So let me say now, having said that, you can see that there is a consequential difference between needing 20 and 21 votes. Had Angela Paxton been recused the way any lawyer, any local politician defines recusal in 50 states and in the federal government, which means not only are you not deliberating, but your body is now removed from the math to determine, you know, the two thirds majority, the three fifths majority, but not in Texas. It was allowed for her to remain basically with a baked in no vote. So what do I think? I think that uh, it, it should have been overturned somehow, but because impeachment is a political act wholly, uh, there's nothing we can do about it. And so Dan Patrick wanted this. It all started when she refused to recuse herself. Now, look, this is the defendant's wife. I mean, <laughs> you don't have to get all esoteric about it. I mean, everyone knows you can't get a wife to testify unless, you know, she... I mean, you, there's a spousal privilege, last I checked. You know, you can't be made to testify against your spouse. And everybody knows that had he been impeached, which he was, had he been convicted, he would have lost his job. So it's community property, your <laughs> income. And so she, she stood to lose half of it. She has a glaring conflict, but that didn't stop the Texas Senate. Interesting. So let, let's turn to the criminal case. Um, that is pending, and when I say pending, maybe the longest pending criminal case in the history of America. Um, I, I haven't researched this, so I can't say for sure, but it's what, seven or eight years since the indictment was brought. And so can you talk about, first of all, what has allowed him to delay it for this long? And secondly, I, I know from our conversation that there is going to be a hearing to set a trial date finally in about a week. Uh, so talk about what that's going to mean. You're right, Jill. I mean, the state of Texas versus Warren Kenneth Paxton is like the bleak house of criminal law in Texas. And uh, he was indicted in 2015. I mean, months after being sworn in as the attorney general uh, because of conduct that had occurred you know a year or two before where he uh, has really admitted that he was selling securities without number one a license and two uh, telling his mark hey you know I'm I'm getting paid on both sides of this deal I mean that's a felony in Texas um, and I, I don't think he has much of a defense why did it take so long he was indicted in his home county of Collin County uh, which is very conservative but you know uh, eight years makes a big difference. Now it's like very purple county and, and it's actually elected a Democrat in the most recent um, 2022 uh, election. Uh, so the first 
item of contention was whether the case should be tried in Collin County or somewhere else. Um, it all started when Ken Paxton used his uh, uh, tools of politics to get the judge removed and, to, you know, to get the district attorney removed. And so the county commissioners had no choice but to hire special prosecutors, you know, uh, to go back to a theme. Uh, and they uh, hired two excellent criminal defense lawyers out of Houston, out of Harris County. Uh, and uh, that is Kent Schaefer and Brian Weiss. They are still on the case, thank God. That is the second reason uh, it took so long. They had their first uh, paycheck cut to them, and then their next bill was ignored. Uh, and Ken Paxton's cronies uh, made sure that the special prosecutors weren't paid. Let me just save you some time. So venue and payment of the special prosecutors from the Collin County coffers have gone up and down our appellate ladder to the Court of Criminal Appeals, our Supreme Court for Criminal Law in Texas, like three times. And that takes eight years, apparently. Now, the case will be heard in Harris County. And that's not because Ken Paxton wanted a change of venue, because the prosecutors did, for obvious reasons. They said, look, this, this is hometown politics in the most worst way. And so now we have a, a new judge who was elected in the 22 cycle, a good Democrat, not that that matters, Andrea Beal, a former uh, assistant district attorney who was a, a child abuse prosecutor. So she's seen hell on earth. And Ken Paxton's not going to be anything she can't handle. Wow, very interesting. So let so I understand that there is a um, snap election in August of 2024. Can you talk about what that means? And potentially, I'm sure a lot of people in Texas are probably fed up with Ken Paxton and see this corruption and, and want maybe an alternative. Can you tell us what that might mean for you? Well, so not not yet, uh, but you you read my email, I can see, which which said that as long as Ken Paxton's office becomes vacant by next August, August 26th, I think is the day. And the reason I have a specific day is the election code in Texas says if a vacancy occurs no later than 75 days before essentially the midpoint of a four-year term, then the governor's appointment certainly is valid, but it must yield at the next general election. So the long and short of it is, if Paxton is impeached and convicted, or if he resigns to avoid federal prison time or state prison time, no later than August 26, 2024, which is, you know, about 11 months away, then there will be a snap election uh, which, you know, the term I use, which kind of reminds me of the Brits, you know, but but that's really the best term for it, a snap election on November 5th, 2024. If he somehow hangs on and is removed during his four-year term after August 26, 2024, well, then the governor's appointment lasts until 26, which is the end of the normal four-year term. He was elected, as you know, last November right. 2022. So, to answer your question, we were, you know, closely following this impeachment trial, uh, counting on justice being done because the evidence is damning. And of course, politics got in the way. So he lives to fight another day. Had he been removed, then the office would have immediately been vacant. The governor would have appointed somebody, but there would have been a snap election set for November 5th. And we would have been part of that. Hmm. 
Can I ask what what does the public think of this? Um, have you talked to anyone in Texas about this, and and what are their thoughts on everything that went down? Depends on what crowd you hang out with. I mean, uh, and and of course we're all on Twitter and we're having a lot of fun with that. And the you know the fifty dollar crowd are still out there. I don't know if they're still being paid, but maybe they're counting on being paid. Um, there's a lot of people that have nothing intelligent to say. You know, cry harder, or you know, there was no evidence. You know, I just love that. There was no evidence. Wow. You know, that was a long trial with no evidence. Yeah. Anyway, God love them. You know, a lot of people just don't understand. To to talk to lawyers and judges and doctors, you know, professionals, you know, working men and women, you know, in the trades, they're disgusted that, you know, the Ken Paxton has his little coterie because they love sticking it to liberals or they love sticking it to immigrants or you know, uh, you know, drag queens, what, whatever the hate model is, those people loved the result, Victor, you know, they're, they're just like, finally, you know, a win. Um, and it's very Trumpian, like Jill said, uh, but the vast majority of Texans are so turned off by this. It's another reason to turn your back on government. And mm -hmm. it's, it's like a difficult test for us, those of us on the outside, Democrats, for example, or independent-minded people who think government should be good, um, whatever your political persuasion, we have to deal with this apathy. And here's, you know, exhibit 12, you know, of why government is a sham. And we've got to not think that way. So has there ever been, or at least in recent memory, has there been a Democrat attorney general of Texas? Oh, you bet. I mean, uh, I think the last Democratic attorney general we had was Dan Morales, uh, who was elected in 90 and reelected in 94. Okay. And then his term was over in 98. And that's when John Cornyn was elected attorney general. Uh, he went to the U.S. Senate right away. And uh, Greg Abbott ran, I guess, in a special election and was attorney general from like 2000 to 2014, and then Ken Paxton, 2014 to present. So, you know, there's been three attorneys general since the last Democrat. It just doesn't seem that right. many, but it was a long time ago. Yeah. yeah, that's for sure. So that kind of raises this issue of Texas politics, which has concerned Victor and me for a while now, because we've watched, you know, some of the laws that have passed in Texas uh, taking away rights, suppressing democracy, suppressing votes. And so I'm just wondering, is that how it feels to you too? And can you paint a picture for us of what Texas, because you did mention at least one county that's turning purple. Um, is there some hope that these laws that are so onerous will be overturned, that some more of Texas will turn purple, that there could be a purple governor or purple uh, or blue Attorney General? Let me say this. Um, the, the court system has been our savior in so many ways, uh, both federal and state. Um, there are any number of great nonprofit uh, legal organizations, Texas Appleseed, Texas Civil Rights Project, you know, uh, MALDEF, NAACP, it, you know, and it goes on. And, and we have great individual attorneys, Chad Dunn is general counsel to the uh, Texas Democratic Party. I mean, this guy is truly a superstar. You know, he he is such a fine 
constitutional and civil rights litigator. I mean, he doesn't lose very often. I'll tell you, um, he was part of a trial recently that I testified in in Galveston uh, federal court uh, involving uh, a Section 2 uh, Voting Rights Act uh, racial gerrymander uh, suit. Uh, so we we often get things reversed or halted. You know, Ken Paxton claims he's the only one who wins in court on these questions. Not, not so. Um, the Fifth Circuit, of course, is a very harsh uh, appellate uh, uh, circuit, uh, unfortunately. And then of course you have the Supreme court, which, you know, sometimes gets it right. <laughs> and, um, what I would say though, is, um, there are 30 million Texans, Jill, uh, and, you know, 21, 24 million of them are voting age. Um, 17 million are registered of that voting age. And, you know, eight to 10 million of them vote in a midterm, a little more in a presidential. So there's there's great voter apathy. Uh, we've always said that if we could actually have a real fair accounting and quit throwing away mail-in ballots, quit making it harder to vote, let, let people use like student IDs to vote. You can't use a student ID to vote in Texas, but you can use your gun license with a oh. picture on it to, wow. to vote. And doesn't that just say it all you know i mean i mean why not both i, I mean you should be able to use a gun license if, it if it's a credible state document with your face on it but so too should you know like a, a university of houston university of texas texas a and i mean are those fraudulent come on and so they're clearly trying to put the thumb on the scale and keep students from having an easy time voting i i would say this um the republican civil war that is ongoing uh, involves everyone from the governor on down and they're all going to have to pick a side. And there's no hiding. Uh, and that primary is next March when Trump will be on the eve of one of his trials. And so he's going to be hot and, you know, nervous and angry. And, you know, there'll have already been a, a primary or a caucus or two. So Super Tuesday is when Texas has its primary. And don't you know, it's going to be hell to pay next March on all this rhetoric. And so uh, they are recruiting Jill um, primary opponents for everybody in the Texas House who voted to impeach Ken Paxton. And they're all going to be primaried with defend Texas Liberty money. These people have more money than you can imagine. Uh, they are fracking billionaires who own their own churches. And they, they suit up on Sunday and, you know, preach the gospel. Um, and they think there shouldn't be, for example, a Jewish member of the Texas House, which we had a great one. He was a Republican, Joe Strauss. They said it to his face. You know, really, you have no business leading our government. And, uh, it, it, this is not widely reported, but it's true. And all you need to look up is, you know, defend Texas liberty, Tim Dunn, Joe Strauss. Google that and tell me what you find. Uh, it was all very credibly reported. Um, so these people are not fit uh, to lead our secular government in Texas. The Houston Chronicle uh, wrote a brilliant uh, uh, editorial board op-ed uh, in the Sunday paper two days ago, basically saying Texas does not need a theocracy, but that's exactly what they're trying to do. So do it sounds like... Go ahead, Victor. I was okay. just going to add, I mean, I, there seems to be an interesting trend 
among southern states, you know, I look at a state like Tennessee and and the tide of young people who are, you know, coming up and 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 really making their voices heard. Is that happening in Texas too? I mean, I, I know there are great young activists in Texas. Olivia Juliano is one of them. And recently, I think um, one Gen Z member of Congress is uh, running, or one Gen Zer is running um, to to go to Congress. What do you think of this kind of shifting demographic in Texas, and how big of a threat does that pose in twenty twenty four? So we, you know, who are mature in our allegiances to the Democratic Party have got to get the baton ready. And, you know, that that is absolutely historically how America has survived. I mean, how old were, you know, most of the men uh, charging the beaches at Normandy, right? Um, no question about it. We rely on our uh, youth uh, to go that extra mile. So it's, it's, you know, I think an analogy only, um, but Olivia, uh, the Gen Z candidates that we're seeing pop up um, are, I think it's Isaiah, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Great guy. Used to be head of the uh, student Democrats at University of Houston, you know, go Cougs. Uh, and, and so we, we have hope and uh, they're raising money and they're active uh, on social media and, and you know, in person, not just social media. So, so I, I think that there is a level of, of noise and not, not noise in a bad sense, but like it's a growing roar that you can hear. And, and I, we've tapped into it time and again, um, most successfully in 2018 when Beto ran the first time. Um, and just because we've lost these races doesn't mean we're making, we're not making progress. Yeah, it it's, does seem like there's more purple now in Texas than ever before, and that maybe that will give hope along with the Gen Zs. And I, I'm just wondering a couple things. One is, are there some things being done to push back against the restrictive laws that are being passed? Is there some big movement in Texas that we outside of Texas should know about? Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I think for one example is, you know, the Texas Democratic Party uh, has uh, a, a new executive director, Monique. And, uh, you know, I, I say, you know, tune in because I believe the party has new leadership, you know, very fresh leadership. I would say Mothers Against Greg Abbott is based in Austin, Texas. It's now Mothers for Democracy because, you know, why limit yourself just to Abbott? I mean, you know, and and I think that's smart. And and we were together, as you know, last weekend uh, with Nancy Thompson. Uh, there are, uh, you know, county chairs. There are uh, clubs all throughout the Dallas-Fort Worth, Houston, uh, Bear County, which is San Antonio, Travis County, which is Austin, uh, and you know the the Valley. So we need connection, uh, and that is, I think, our opportunity because. What we're going to see in this Republican civil war is true ugliness, ugliness, and it's going to be, you know, how far to the right can they go? And and I predict many of the uh, Christian nationalist far right candidates will succeed. They will win. They will be the Republican Party standard bearer for six months. We have runoffs in May for those who don't win outright, but I think they're being very careful, the funders, to make sure that there's one person running against these incumbents and they're going to tear them down and it's going to be ugly, Jill. It's going to be like whisper campaign stuff. It's going to be 
you know, like late night. I'm, I don't know if we're going to see crosses burning, but it's going to have that feel to it. Um, wow. Like you better vote the right way or you may be sorry. I, I think now is a time for people to be very brave and to really check what they're willing to do. Yeah. So let's maybe someone who's brave if you're going to possibly run again in Texas. So I applaud that. I, I, I want to ask a few. I'll ask one wrap up question and maybe Victor will ask one wrap up question. Uh, for me, it's, of course, I can't end this without mentioning that I worked for your grandfather um, and probably met you as a young boy because you came to see the trial in the 70s. Oh. And um, so just as a personal thing, I would love to have you talk about him. I knew him in a very limited way, although he did talk about some of his experience as a war crimes prosecutor, something that's pretty relevant now with Jack Smith and um, others coming forward um, into significant roles in the government now. But, you know, talk a little bit about what your impression of Watergate or your grandfather was. No, happily. Uh, and, and so I did uh, take spring break uh, my sixth grade year uh, in Washington, <laughs> D.C. and stayed at the Jefferson uh, wow. with Mr. and Mrs. Jaworski in a cot. Uh, and what I recall was on two occasions walking with the colonel, as we called Leon, yes. uh, the family name, we called him Opa, which is German oh. for, for grandfather. And, um, you know, he spoke German as a child in his home in, in Texas which is what made him a true killer uh, when it came to being a prosecutor of the Nazis who thought he was some American rube. And, and in the interrogation rooms, they'd sit there and just say the worst things to him in German, thinking, how could he possibly know? And then he wow. would address them after they basically hung themselves in perfect German. And they, you know, the eyes would open and, and that's how deals got done back then. But, but in D.C. in 74, I was there in March. And what I remember, you know, these are little anecdotes going up the elevator uh, at the uh, Jefferson. And after you get past like the second or third floor, you could smell my grandmother's spaghetti red cooking in the little kitchenette. Very modest couple, really. Um, you know, there were no Uber Eats back then. And so she cooked, you know, uh, on several occasions. Uh, I remember walking with him uh, to the office on a cold, crisp day and you know, I, I just found it so invigorating. Um, he he was our patriarch, Jill. I mean, he had a ranch, as you know, where he would decompress during the most intense moments of Watergate. He would go to Wimberley, Texas. And that's where we all spent Thanksgiving and Christmas and summers. Um, he had a truly beautiful uh, working ranch uh, with quarter horses. Um, and he, he he was not like one of these all hat, no cattle guys. I mean, this guy... Leon would wake up, you know, at 5 a.m., uh, put a bunch of beer and, and cold water in the back of his Jeep and go out with about 10 chainsaws. And he had a thousand acres and he would clear land is what they called it. So he was a cedar whacker. And that's what you did on your hill country land is you removed cedar trees. Wow. He talked very fondly about his quarter horses. That was a a very emotional thing for him was, was his ranch and his horses. And, um, and he, he was known as Colonel, which I assume goes back to his world war II service. Uh, as so thank you for sharing that. Oh, I'd, I'd talk about him with you anytime. He, he, um, he respected you greatly. 
And uh, I, I, there's a photo of him opening the car door. I think either you're entering or exiting the car. And I just think he was so proud of his team. He was so proud. Wow. He, he really, he was very kind to me. I will say that. So let's end by talking about um, maybe addressing, we always like to address young people as a last question. Talk about how you made your way into politics and running for office and what you would say to someone who might be interested in running for office. Oh, Victor, what a great question. I, I you know, clearly was involved in a public family uh, in many ways, but none of us ever like ran for office. My dad, my grandfather, both men, Jaworski men who I take my cues from, uh, never ran for office. I mean, there's rumors that LBJ offered, um, you know, Leon Jaworski a seat on the text on the United States Supreme Court, which he, you know, respectfully declined. Um, how I got involved was the serendipity of moving to Galveston, Texas from the big city of Houston, because my wife was a fan of the historic homes there. Well, I'm a maritime lawyer. That's my paying gig. And so we went down there because it's an island and it's a coastal community with a famous port. And I thought, well, that that's consistent with my practice. Uh, I now have my law firm there. It's a wonderful city. I, I, I ran for city council in 2000 because my realtor was term limited. And he said, you'd make a fine councilman. I mean, it was literally that easy. It was like, well, why don't you join my church? You know, I mean, it was just, it was just the most common sort of neighborhood thing to do. And uh, the island of Galveston may be small in population, but it's consequential in history. And we had a couple of pretty serious hurricanes hit, Victor. Uh, I was elected mayor after a hundred year storm destroyed our island. And it became a true test of courage to receive uh, close to a billion dollars in community development block grant funds. And of course, everybody wanted it for their project. But when you get it from housing and urban development, you're going to have to rebuild your public housing. You know what I mean? And so I said, we're not going to rebuild apartments just to replace the ones that were there and had been there for 40 years and we're showing their age. We're going big. And we're going to do like they did in New Orleans. We're going to do mixed income housing, which triples the numbers. Well, you can imagine the not in my backyard crowd had a reaction to that. So that was the true test. And, and it was a breathtaking experience to stand your ground. Um, I would actually refer the viewers, the listeners to a very similar experience documented on the HBO platform uh, called Show Me a Hero. It's the true story of the mayor of Yonkers, New York, from 1980, where he at first opposed a federal desegregation order, but then came to embrace it and had to explain it to the angry electorate. And then they turned on him. So, I, you know, I'm not going to pat myself on the back too much other than to say local government. Um, somebody said in the Obama administration, in fact, it might have been President Obama, you know, you know, it was something to the effect of, you know, take the courageous path. Don't take the easy path. You know, it's, it's things you've heard Kennedy say, you know, we we take this not because it's easy, but because it's hard. You know, the true challenge of leadership um, is to sometimes stand alone, but to do the right thing and risk the consequences. Um, so that's what I would say to young people is we need that courage uh, greatly. Now, think of yourself as the next wave and look for something to run because we need good people who aren't jaundiced and jaded to be in office now. 
Well, that is great advice. And we thank you so much for joining us today and just talking about all of this. We're so appreciative. I'm proud to be on the show. Thank you guys so much. Well, that was such a wonderful episode with Joe Jaworski, and I loved his anecdote about his grandfather. Um, but let's talk about um, something that has been very much in the news lately, um, which is John Fetterman and his dress code. And just to give our audience a little bit of context, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer um, said that uh, basically created a new rule saying that senators um, can loosen up their dress code. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of talk on the Internet and, and at least even with my friends about whether or not senators dressed like John Fetterman, who's known to you know have a hoodie on and have shorts on, whether or not that's appropriate. Um, Jill, what do you think? So this is such an emotional issue for me because, well, first of all, when I started practicing law, female attorneys were required to wear skirts. My first trial was in Alaska. Everyone on the jury was wearing flannel lined pants oh and I was wearing a skirt. In 30 below, and I don't mean wind chill, I mean 30 below temperature and deep, deep snow. So whether or not that is considered professional attire for a woman to wear pants became a very big issue for me. It also is a big issue because throughout Watergate, the press would report on what I was wearing before they said what I asked in court. Right. So of course, that became a big issue. They didn't talk about what my male colleagues, Richard Benvenista and James Neal wore. They only talked about what I wore. So to me, it was just the height of sexism and demeaning behavior. I also am part of the generation where casual Friday became a thing. Oh. So when I started practicing law, aside from courtroom attire, even at the office, I had to dress in skirt suits. And all of a sudden, when I found myself, I could wear pants on a Friday. At that point, I had only skirt suits. And I was like, I'm not going out and buying a whole new wardrobe just to wear pants. But then I did and realized how much freedom it gave me. Uh, yeah. So I'm very cognizant of what impression you create by how you dress mm -hmm. and how you present yourself to a jury or to your constituents will maybe make a difference. So I, I think it's interesting, but I do think nowadays what counts as appropriate attire is very much different than the narrow definition. Women used to dress in male-like suits. We wore you know big shoulder padded pinstripe suits with little ties. Not We never wore tie ties like men wear, but sort of a little floppy tie. It was disgusting and silly. Um, and I'm very glad that we've come to a point where I can wear any color I want. I don't have to wear dark colors. I can wear bright green or red or anything I want. Um, but what does your generation think? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll just say, I mean, it's so absurd that we are having that we're that so many people are focusing on this issue. I mean, Fox is doing a lot of segments about John Fetterman's outfits, you know, at the, at a time when government could be shutting down and when we when we face so many challenges. But I mean, I I am an old soul, as you know, Jill, um, and I uh, there's a part of me that thinks that you know 
I'm totally for freedom to to dress however you want. And I think it's a very important thing. And, you know, especially Gen Zers, there's been many articles about how Gen Z is the generation that will go to work and just not care about how they look. And there are a lot of older generations that will look at that and say, you know, well, you want to dress for the job that you want. And so you shouldn't be dressed so loosely and, um, you know, have crop tops on or have, you know, go into the office with shorts or a t-shirt. Um, and, you know, I, so I think it's for Gen Z as, on the whole, seeing someone like John Fetterman and, and the way he dresses, I don't think they have a problem with it. But I, I also do think that I don't know. The Senate carries with it such a prestige and and it's so revered around the world. And one of the interesting parts about this, though, is that the staff and the interns still have to dress in suits and, and formally. And so it makes me wonder, well, why why does the senator actually get, get a pass and why can the senator dress loosely? And 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 I often think about, you know, we've seen the moments where, you know, Kristen Cinema goes on the House floor with a wig and, you know, with loose, loose clothing and she gets totally slammed for it. And and I wonder, you know, in a world, what would happen if she was the one who brought this up? I don't know. It's just, it's just to me interesting. And I don't know how much, like, I don't, like, this doesn't really sit well with me at least. Well, I'd love to hear from our listeners and viewers <laughs> about, yeah. I really would, because there is a part of me that says it doesn't matter, but there is a bigger part of me that says how you present yourself to the yeah. world does make a difference. And that I know a jury will take me more seriously. And when I say wearing pants, I'm not talking about wearing jeans into court. I'm talking about wearing a very nice pair of slacks with a matching jacket or at least a jacket that looks nice with it. I'm not talking about um, wearing crop tops. That, oh God, that, <laughs> oh, that, that is so out of it. Yeah. But, but I'd be very curious as to whether, um, I, I remember reading in college, a book called Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. Hmm. I learned a lot about life from that. And yeah. it does matter how you present yourself, what you think of yourself. And, you know, back during Watergate, wearing skirts or dresses um, that were in colorful colors seemed to me perfectly appropriate professional wear. Hmm. And so I do think there is a level of professional clothing that you should adhere to. But it was a really interesting piece. And I, I, I'm not sure if you read it, but it basically argued that Senator Fetterman's attempt to address or to dress the way that he does is actually inauthentic because he has a tremendous amount of power. He comes he doesn't come from a poor working class background. His parents were both very wealthy. He comes from a very wealthy family. And someone said that, you know, it's not actually authentic and and on character for Fetterman to dress like that. And and I basically said that, you know, the way that he dresses isn't authentic. And I'm and I'm curious if kind of what you think about that. Well that that's I, I hadn't read that or heard that, but I it do think, Atlantic. It, um, I do think authenticity is very important. I, yeah. Again, using my experience as a trial lawyer, a jury will not accept what you have to say if they think you're not authentic, if they think you're not genuine. So I, I always felt that I could never pretend to be a um, brazen, bold lawyer because that's not who I am. Well, I could be organized and quietly present a case that's who I am. And that works for me with a jury. It works for me with the public. Fetterman ran wearing hoodies. 
So when he was elected, people knew what they were electing. So whether it's authentic or not, it is who he presented to them, who they voted for, who they accepted. He won wearing those clothing. So I I think his case may be a little different than the candidate who runs. You know, you have Jim Jordan who never puts on a jacket. Yes. And we think that that was inappropriate behavior in the Senate, that the Senate deserved the decorum of a shirt and tie and jacket. And he he rolls up his sleeves and goes to work. And he's excited. So is that any worse or better than wearing a hoodie. Right. I don't know. Um, but again, true. I'd like to hear from our audience totally, about that. Totally. And, and say whatever you want to say about the way that John Fetterman dresses, but I do think it's also important to note that he has done some amazing things um, in the Senate so far. And, you know, he, as we all know, he was sent into a hospital because of his depression and he came back and he had a very moving moment recently in the Senate um, during a committee hearing in which he showed his phone and the transcription app that he needs to fully understand, um, you know, what, what people are saying. And it was just really moving and it kind of uh, reiterated yeah, let, let me just clarify that because as a result of his um, stroke, yeah. he had auditory and um, speech aphasia. His speech is back. He can That's speak totally perfectly, true. but his auditory processing has not returned fully. And so he uses this app that translates what he hears or what someone says to him into print because his visual uh, capacity is fine. So he can read and understand exactly what anyone is saying. It's just that the words don't always make sense. So it's, a, and his his emotional moment came when he was talking about assistance for uh, people with other disabilities, mm-hmm. people who cannot do other things and how the um, modern techniques allow them to fully function in society and how much he supports that. So it was a very very emotional and, and wonderful moment, but it was also very good to hear him speaking with such clarity because for a while his speech was definitely impaired during definitely. the campaign. Definitely. Well, we are running out of time, but let us know what you think uh, in the comments or through our Twitter pages or threads or whatever platform you use. Um, and we thank you for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics with Joe Jaworski. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We'll be back next week with another episode of iGen Politics. But in the meantime, you can subscribe to us right here on youtube.com slash Politicon. Be sure to like and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Or if you listen to this, you can also follow us wherever you follow your podcasts, um, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Google Google Podcasts, wherever you stream your podcast, we are there and be sure to leave us a rating as it helps tremendously. Thank you everyone for watching or listening and we will see you next week. Have a great week.